Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. This week, we discuss the efficacy, or otherwise, of alternative and complementary medicine. If you take acupuncture, for instance, the bottom line is that we are still not convinced that acupuncture works for any conditions. As a skeptic, one might say, if after so many years of investigation and after clinical trials and much other research, the evidence isn't conclusive, then maybe this is because the treatment isn't very effective. And we find out how cities can be made more age-friendly for their increasingly elderly populations. Medics are kind of mopping up the problems that designers of our built environment have created, and it's time that designers started putting it right upstream. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. My colleague Andrew Jack, the FT Pharmaceuticals correspondent, is here with me, and our special guest this week is Edzard Ernst, who's just retired after 18 years as the world's first professor of alternative and complementary medicine at the Peninsula Medical School in Exeter. He's joining us on the phone. Hello, Edzard. Hello. So most people in the world of alternative medicine welcomed the creation of your professorship in 1993. Would it be fair to say that your research over the years has disappointed them because you found little or no scientific evidence that their treatments work? Yes, I, I think that would be fair to say. When I was appointed, the world of alternative medicine was jubilant and they thought finally they had what they wanted, full chair in their speciality, somebody who promotes and stands up for practitioners of alternative medicine who defends homeopathy, etc., etc. And they were very quickly quite disappointed, even angry and aggressive, because I understood my job as a scientist, and as a scientist you do critical evaluation, and I understood critical with a capital C. For me, it didn't make sense at all to promote alternative medicine at a university level. It's already being promoted at all levels far too much, and my aim was to scrutinize it uh, using the tools of science. So very quickly, there was this sentiment of disappointment, even anger, in the world of alternative medicine about me and my post. When you were appointed, were you already very sceptical, or did your scepticism grow as you did your research? If anything, I was slightly pro-alternative medicine. I had learned homeopathy in a homeopathic hospital. I had used these treatments. I had learned acupuncture and so forth, and I had developed an interest. But as a scientist, you have to leave all this behind you, and you have to do the best you can to be objective. And I'm sorry to have disappointed so many people, but that's how it is. Tell us about the studies which showed, as far as you were concerned, that most alternative therapies were not working. 
it's difficult to put it like this. It's much better to say that the evidence fails to show that these treatments or many of these treatments work. If you take acupuncture, for instance, we have around 2,000, that's my estimate, 2,000 clinical trials. And the bottom line is that we are still not convinced that acupuncture works for any conditions, not totally convinced. For some conditions, it seems to work, but there's still doubt about that. And as a skeptic, one might say, if after so many years of investigation and after about 2,000 clinical trials and much other research, the evidence isn't conclusive, then maybe this is because the treatment isn't very effective. Andrew? You say you yourself trained originally in homeopathy and acupuncture. So was there an earlier stage in your career where, for whatever reason, you were convinced when you saw individual patients, did you believe perhaps that it worked? And so does that help you to think about maybe how some of the doctors today who use those therapies still seem so committed to them? Yes, that's a good point. My very first appointment after studying medicine was in a homeopathic hospital and I was totally bowled over by homeopathy and what I saw and patients getting better. And But nowadays I, I see this differently. I have to critically question my own experience. Firstly, any doctor's first post would be very impressive to him. When you let loose on real patients, that is both scary and impressive. Secondly, patients do get better, and they do get better by a whole host of mechanisms. One could be that the actual treatment has specific effects, but there are other things like the natural history of the disease. People do get better even if you don't treat them. So what I'm trying to say is that doctors throughout history of medicine have, in a way, fooled themselves by thinking that the treatments that they prescribe are so ingenious that these treatments actually do help patients. Whereas if you want to be sure about this point, you have to rely on clinical trials. That's the only methodology that tells you whether treatment works. Your own experience as a doctor, your own experience as a patient can be totally misleading. And how to explain, though, that, you know, there are medical schools both in this country and elsewhere that seem to teach as part of the training programs for doctors, alternative treatments, and yet don't seem able or willing to integrate a more critical, rigorous, scientific approach to that corpus of knowledge and that approach. That is a big problem. Medical schools in this country and elsewhere have an obligation to teach about alternative medicine, and that is entirely correct because later on in life as a doctor you'll be exposed to these things and you ought to know about alternative medicine. So medical schools look for people who teach medical students about, say, homeopathy, and, and they're likely to find a local homeopath, and this local homeopath is likely to teach a lot of uncritical nonsense. What I'm trying to say is that people who can teach about homeopathy, etc., and still remain critical and take a scientific stance on that subject are far and few between. Now, you mentioned the importance of clinical trials. Isn't it rather hard for many forms of alternative therapy actually to come up with a randomized clinical trial where the patients and the practitioners don't know who's getting the treatment and who isn't, just by the nature, for example, of acupuncture? I mean, can you carry out a sham acupuncture as a control? Isn't part of the problem that it's actually really hard to find out if they work, even if they do? 
that is true. There's almost a hierarchy of rigor. And you can always do a randomized clinical trial. You can always have a group of patients and randomly allocate them into group A, which receives the experimental treatment, and into group B, which doesn't. That is possible with any type of therapy. But you cannot often blind patients or practitioners to what treatment is being administered, and you sometimes have difficulties in finding an adequate placebo that allows you to blind patients and practitioners. And acupuncture is actually quite a good example. We developed a sham acupuncture needle that is like a stage dagger and and doesn't actually penetrate the skin. But prior to that, it was difficult to do sham controlled trials. What that means is you may not able to apply the utmost rigor to one particular treatment, but you still can do the best that is possible and Randomized clinical trials are always possible. For instance, with hypnosis, there's no way you can do a sham hypnosis for for a number of reasons. But you can, if your research question is, does hypnosis alleviate pain, you can compare hypnosis to conventional pain treatment, and you will get an interesting result. You just have to alter your research question according to the methodology that is applicable to that particular situation. Let us leave alternative medicine on a positive note. You found very few treatments that work. Tell us what does work, what is effective and safe. Well, one of the best researched areas is clearly herbal medicine. And that is not surprising because a lot of modern drugs originate from the plant kingdom. And we have a number of herbal extracts where the isolation of the active compound isn't possible because it's a whole family of active compounds. And if you isolate one, you don't get the whole benefit. And a good example for that is St. John's Ward, which has been submitted to rigorous clinical trials about 40 times over. And the totality of this evidence very clearly shows that it is effective for mild to moderate depression. And some trials also suggest that it is at least as effective as conventional antidepressants. And a lot of data shows that it's actually, if you use it properly, don't combine it with other drugs so that it can cause interactions with prescription drugs, then it is much, much safer than conventional antidepressants. So here we have a treatment that has been tested over and over again, has been shown to be effective and has been shown to be more effective and more safe than conventional option. Do you think, though, Edzard, that it's wrong that the UK regulatory system effectively allows to get through, and indeed not just in the UK, traditional medicines simply on the basis they've been used for a long time or if you remove claims of efficacy? Is that a bit of a cop-out? Yes, regulation is is a big problem and it concerns the regulation of the practitioner. Doctors have to be regulated as much as complementary practitioners have to be and it concerns the regulation of the products. Herbal medicines have to be regulated similar to the way prescription medicines are regulated. And in particular with herbal medicine, we had European law coming in, which provides that at least the quality of the product and the safety of the product has to be guaranteed in a similar fashion as prescription drugs. Efficacy is still a problem in my view because the regulators felt that they cannot insist on rigorous proof of efficacy and they substituted that with what they felt long enough 
time on the market. In other words, if it's used traditionally, then it is felt to be efficacious. And that, I think, is a compromise and might be not a very good compromise because it essentially means that we have very little impetus now for doing the clinical trials, for finding out what actually does work and what doesn't work. Thanks, Ed Saad. Now I'm afraid we have to move on to our contribution from the British Medical Journal. Over to Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ. Thanks, Clive. Looking at the average retirement home, you'd think that designing for the elderly was all about making things as bland as possible and moving old people out of vibrant city centres into the suburbs. But the World Health Organisation is trying to change that with their Age-Friendly Cities programme. At the Helen Hamlin Centre for Design at the Royal College of Art in London, their whole ethos is about putting people at the centre of design. And last week I visited their studios to talk to Jeremy Myerson, the director there, about designing for a better old age. The WHO have got a very ambitious programme around what they call age-friendly cities. And they've also got a very ambitious programme around active ageing. And these two things really coincide because the built environment, how we organise our housing, our workplaces, our public spaces and transport around the city, um, that has a major implication for how well people age in place. And active ageing is all about um, counteracting the inevitable frailties and disabilities that come with ageing with an intelligent design of our cities and the issue of how one designs for an ageing population is very much tied into the argument for social inclusion. So instead of of putting people in retirement homes and and taking them out of the view of the mainstream of society and away from workplaces, for example, and public spaces, we're trying to make the city more age-friendly so that older people have more profile, more visibility within the city. And that's a very different approach from a generation ago. That new approach is being forced by a change in the age demographic of the world. Advances in healthcare mean that an increasing proportion of us head towards retirement still fit and healthy and unwilling to be left out of mainstream society. The new old, the baby boomer generation who are coming up to retirement age, they're very different from the old old. The new old, you know, were the first teenagers, they're using media, they're computer savvy, they are very active and vocal and demanding consumers. And the WHO has this uh, categorisation where they talk about three stages of active ageing, being, which is to do with the physiological state of the human body, Mm. um, uh, belonging, your social networks. And then the third state is, is becoming, which suggests an aspirational view of of older people within cities. The link between a person's social situation and their health is long established, but this WHO programme exemplifies how important it is to take a wide-ranging view of ways to improve lives. I think design is crucial to that more holistic view. Design approaches to ageing are more to do with prevention than cure, and a lot of the problems that medics have to deal with are to do with systemic design failures. Lack of suitable accommodation, uh, inability to take medication correctly because the labelling and packaging is not correct, social isolation and and mental health problems because of issues to do with access to public space and transport. So medics are kind of mopping up 
um, the problems that designers of our built environment have created. And it's time that designers started putting it right upstream. Back to you, Clive. Thanks, Duncan, and thanks to the BMJ. Edzard, you're not an expert, probably, on ageing and how to produce a healthier ageing, but you are an expert on how we assess particular procedures for making people healthier. Do you think it's possible to say scientifically whether this design-based approach to ageing is going to work? And it sounds intuitively as though it will, but maybe intuitively people thought homeopathy was going to work and then it didn't. Actually, I can't think of anything that is less counterintuitive than homeopathy, but you're right. One would feel intuitively that this design-led approach to aging is right. And if your question is, how do we make sure it is effective? Again, you need to do a clinical trial. Thanks. Well, I think the lesson from today is rigorous assessment of anything we do to intervene in people's health. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Please join me for another fascinating look at the world of science next week. Many thanks to Andrew Jack and Edzard Ernst for joining me today, and thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. The latest episode of The Next Five Podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Brien, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.